The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Thursday, May 19th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The United States women's national soccer team has achieved everything it could on the field. They are unequaled. But that was also the case in their paychecks in comparison to the men's team. Sentiment was clear about what the women deserved. However much a stadium of cheering fans compels, it has no legal standing. And the gender pay lawsuit brought by the women was thrown out by a judge. Literally, it was a summary dismissal. They had no case. Legally, the judge ruled that they hadn't even proved they were paid unequally. Players and fans of the team couldn't believe it. But even so, and even if they couldn't, the decision was, in fact, just. Many of the arguments put forth in public were simply specious or inaccurate when it came to the law. Take this segment on The View after the women won the World Cup in 2019. The U.S. uh, women's team brings in more revenue than the men's. More people watch them. So the question is why are they still only getting 18 cents on the dollar? Wow. Mm -hmm. We were just speaking about that backstage because apparently, I mean, it's not a little bit of money, but they get $250,000 for their win. A man would have gotten $1.1 million for the win. Quite a difference. Two gasps at different times from the View crowd. First of all, Whoopi Goldberg got that 18 cents figure. I don't know from where. Someone made it up, put it in a teleprompter. She repeated it erroneously. It has no bearing on even any argument I could think of. Even in the lawsuit, the women didn't claim they were making 18 cents on the dollar. It was something in the 60s. The judge disagreed. There was that other gasp that you heard, and that was occasioned by the hosts not explaining that the Women's World Cup pays all of its participants a total of $30 million, whereas the Men's World Cup pays 15 times that. There is just so much less money at stake in the women's game that achieving the same level of accomplishment between men and women couldn't result in equal compensation. I mean, you could calculate something like the women got 13% of the total prize pool for winning their World Cup, and the men's team, which was France, that won their World Cup, got 9.5% of the total pool. But the Americans, the last two World Cups, didn't even qualify. It's a hard comparison to make. Knowing what I know about how these contracts worked, I wondered how the U.S. Soccer Federation could ever find a solution. It seemed impossible. There simply wasn't enough money in women's soccer to pay the women the same as the men, even if the women were the best and the men were somewhere between 20th and 40th best in the world. It's where around where their rankings are. And I was right. I was right. The U.S. Soccer Federation did not have a solution within their grasp. There was nothing the Federation could do. There was nothing the women could do to equalize things. There's really only one group that could flatten the playing field, and that was the other players on it. The men of the U.S. national team, who, by the way, did qualify for the World Cup this year, have voluntarily decided to pool all of their winnings with the women. They didn't have to, and from the reporting, it wasn't an easy choice. Some U.S. men's soccer players sign fairly rich contracts, but generally, these are 
upper middle class athletes compared to the upper upper class of all other athletes in major U.S. professional team sports. And the men will make less in order to have the women make more. And you don't see that happening in any other sport, really any other profession. The NBA Players Association negotiates a separate deal from the WNBA, but so did the U.S. men and the women until they didn't. It's a great moment for the United States. We have set the standard in the world, outstripping even the Norwegians. It's a great moment for U.S. women, a great moment for U.S. men, and that all represents a great future for U.S. soccer. Really, I hate jargon like this, but what we've just seen I think is the embodiment of allyship. On the show today, I spiel about that which I haven't covered. I am loath to accept plaudits, but in this case, you are welcome. The thing is, I happen to be wearing a cape right now, but I know that old line about not all heroes wearing one. I just decided to accessorize in this way at this moment, but still, it applies. But first, the Russians have taken Mariupol. They have been rebuffed in Kyiv and Kharkiv, World War II-style artillery battles rage in the east as Ukrainian forces dive into trenches to avoid being hit by the superior Russian equipment, and that is on the battlefield. But what of the war rooms and the halls of power back in Russia? How might the internal politics of a country shaped by the will of a ruthless leader navigate the rest of this war? We will discuss with an expert on Russian politics, Yoshiko M. Herrera, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, is up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Yoshiko Herrera is professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She researches Russian politics, nationalism, identity, and ethnic politics. And I think those are the first four areas I want to talk to her about. Professor Herrera, thanks for coming on The Gist. You're welcome. Thank you. So let's talk nationalism, both sides of this conflict. Ukrainian nationalism 
has really been solidified by the Russian incursion this time and the Russian incursion in 2014. And it seems to me that uh, Russia didn't notice this was the case. How is the presence of this Ukrainian nationalism playing out and affecting the war? Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest factors on the Ukrainian side in terms of their... um, Success, And I think it explains to some extent why some people have been surprised by it. Because if you weren't following Ukrainian politics closely or actually at all, I guess since 2014, um, then people may not have noticed that despite the fact that historically there were some really important divides in Ukraine, principally linguistic divides between Russian and Ukrainian speakers, ethnic divides, um, religious divides, Uh, Since 2014, Ukraine as a country realized that they are in threat, under threat of losing their sovereignty. And for a lot of Ukrainians, it's not a kind of academic, geopolitical, abstract thought. It's really like, hey, we're back to World War II. We could lose our country. And I think that motivated people to get over previous identity differences and to to really work together. And the biggest symbol of that is the election in 2019 of Vladimir Zelensky, Russian speaking from the eastern Russian sort of part of Ukraine, more Russian oriented, let's say, part of Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, Jewish, and his support by uh, strong Ukrainian nationalists in that election. So he's kind of a symbol of like, wow, politics has changed in Ukraine. And that I think has been a hugely important factor for morale. Um, And the other piece that's really important is in terms of collaboration. Very few, very few collaborators um, this time around compared to 2014. And so... When important officials defected to the Russian side in 2014. Yes, the head of the Ukrainian Navy, for example. Um, So, but, you know, there's been a lot of separation since 2014. People who were pro-Russia had a lot of time to move to Russia, to switch right. sides, etc. So this is the part with nationalism that I think is also overlooked, even if we look at the idea of, oh, the Ukrainians are united, because the ones that aren't had already been siphoned away. It's a little like uh, midterm elections in the United States. Once Republicans, let's say, sweep in and do well in purple districts, the next time it's harder for them to do well because they already plucked the lowest fruit. So in Ukraine, the people who were so many of the people who had Russian sentiments to begin with, well, they have the choice. They could move to Crimea. They could align themselves or move to uh, far eastern Ukraine, which was basically being governed uh, as a Russian vassal state. And now what was once a divided nation really is united. I mean, Zelensky got 73 percent of the vote. It's something not only that Western observers missed. I think Putin missed it, too. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, that's, I just think, a, that's just like, to my mind, a crucial part of why all Ukrainians together are working in unison. It affects so many aspects of governance, the corruption that you see sometimes in wars and in in um, situations with aid. Like, you just aren't seeing a lot of stories of corruption, of Ukrainians taking the money and pocketing it rather than uh, using it towards the war effort, etc. I mean, there's just tremendous resolve on the part of Ukrainians to... Um, maintain their state. 
Yeah, and on the other side, the Russian war machine is beset by corruption. Bill Browder said that it was a rule of thumb to just divide whatever they say their military budget is, divide by five, because 80% of the real military budget is siphoned off for corruption. So you have a totally non, you have a totally corrupt state fighting a generally united and non-corrupt state. Uh, all, thing el- all things else being even, and they're not even, they're weighted towards Russia, but the status of the Ukrainians is going to be advantageous. Yeah, I think the corruption on the Russian side is going to, when people write the military history of this and, and try to understand the failures, the corruption is going to be a huge part of it. I mean, just one example is in the communications. They were supposedly, um, they had supposedly upgraded their communications, and then most people think now that that money was probably stolen, and... Um, that's why they're relying on cell phones and other kinds of insecure communications. Another which is, is, get, the, which is getting their generals killed left and right because it's easy to trace it. And their generals are really important in the way they structure their military being right there at the front. Yeah, exactly. And one other piece of the corruption um, is the FSB, the successor to the KGB, was supposed to uh, take hundreds of millions of dollars and um, pay off Ukrainians to support Russia so that when they entered, this is going to be this three-day war and they're going to pay off all these people and they were going to immediately switch sides to Russia and get this support. And that never materialized. And those FSB top people are now under house arrest in Russia. So that's another piece of like, what happened to all that money? Did they just pocket it? That's one Mm -hmm. story. Did they give it to the Ukrainians and those people just took it and never switched sides or or what happened? But, you know, that, that whole effort also seems to be a total failure. It is an aspect of human nature that we tend to see other people through our own lens. So here we have the Russians, this in- fundamentally corrupt people trying to bribe the incorruptible. It's not going to go well. Yes, I think I think there's a lot of that. I think, uh, you know, if you look at the way Putin governs Russia, he thinks that he snaps his fingers and everybody falls in line. That he says, this person is the governor, that person is the mayor, this one is in the Duma. Everything goes the way that he wants it, mm-hmm. in terms of the political leadership of, of United, his party, United Russia. So he thinks he has, you know, you just tell somebody this is what's going to happen, and they do it. And I think they may have thought they're just going to go into Ukraine, and they're going to find these regional oligarchs and say, hey, you know, now we're in charge, uh, we'll be the new source of money, etc. But interestingly... Let's say you're a regional oligarch in Ukraine, and let's say you're interested in money. Once you see the war not going well for Russia and you see the sanctions, it's very easy to say, well, I either stay on the Ukrainian side and I'm a hero, or (laughs) I switch sides to the losing side and I get nothing. So even from a material point of view, you can see that the the choice, the the mechanisms that, that Putin had for controlling people are just not working in Ukraine. So let's talk about Russian nationalism. I mean, nationalism can take many flavors, and I guess Putin has assumed or tried to cultivate a sense of uh, Russian military might, a little bit of grievance. I don't know how much ethnic nationalism comes into play, but what's his particular version of nationalism, and uh, how's it working for him? Yeah, so actually, I think this is an interesting thing that not everybody understands. I think that Putin has never had a very clear, coherent message, ideology, let's say. Okay, if you look over his 22 years of rule, the one thing he's been consistent on is um, punishing his enemies. Mm-hmm. So exile, 
uh, prison, murder, assassination, poisonings, etc., of people who stood up to him. So that part is clear. But in terms of what the regime stands for, what does it mean to be Russian? They've kind of moved around with different, different, different projects over the years. Um, and recently, I mean, this anti-Ukraine um, rhetoric, for example, that is not something that's that's been part of his rule for all this time. So they, they sort of bring out these, or the NATO having biological weapons or something. It's just like yesterday we made that up, and that's what we're saying today. Yeah. And we'll stop saying it you know, tomorrow. But the things that are consistent, I think one of the things that, that is consistent and does have support is the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. That has been a consistent theme that he has. Uh, to say he's emphasized it is just an understatement. I mean, he's just pressed that message over and over and over in every possible sphere. And so this victory of the Soviets over the Nazis is is actually something that a lot of Russians until recently probably also identified with because it was a legitimate victory. I mean, even if you're anti-Russian, you would have to say like, well, actually, you know, the Soviet war effort was important to defeating Nazi Germany. And actually they yeah. did lose 25 million people during the war. So, so that, that has a, that had a, a legitimate aspect to it that they could say like, well, this makes us, um, sort of morally and mil- militarily superior in the world. So that message is is legitimate, but Putin has kind of hijacked that message now to claim that um, Ukrainians are Nazis. And they do that by saying Nazism actually equals anything anti-Soviet. Nazism is not anti-Semitism. It's anti-Soviet, anti-Russian. And so that's how you can have a Jewish president who's anti-Russia as a Nazi. Um, but that that part of the the current messaging i think does resonate with the population you know but it has its limits yeah it has its limits it's not that hard to convince the people of something that they want to believe in in the first place so mm-hmm. you know calling zelensky a nazi doesn't really perhaps bother people too much if you don't have anything invested in who Zelensky is in the first place or generally prattling on about this you know, amazing military achievement that's 75 years in the past. I, I, I assume this has a lot of resonance in 1975, less resonance in 1995. And now you're only talking about, you know, three and four generations removed from the actual victory. So is this a deeply rousing sentiment or is this more like, you know, the social cohesion that every country has, but it's not enough to say, play on and get people to volunteer to go and fight in Ukraine? Well, I mean, I think kind of two things are true. It does have a lot of resonance with the society. People legitimately are proud of the Soviet victory. But does that mean they're willing to commit war crimes? Does that mean they're willing to have their sons go fight in Ukraine at this point? And I think the answer to that is no. A lot of people are like, yeah, yay, Soviet victory. But like, no, <laughs> no, we don't actually want another war. I mean, part of the language of the of the celebration of the Soviet victory is to say no war. There should never be a war like that again. And so saying like, now we're doing it again is just like, mm. what? I mean, why would we do that? I mean, that you're supposed to be preventing this kind of thing from happening again, not uh, repeating it. So I don't think that messaging is enough to um, mobilize people. And that's one of the reasons I think we didn't see on May 9th a call for 
a public call for mobilization. Yes. So what does opposition or mobilization against Putin look like? I've talked to people who said this could this could possibly weaken Putin. He could uh, lose his standing among elites. I got to be honest, he's done a good job on me and I don't have to use a VPN to figure out information about him. I literally can't even imagine anything like a palace coup, him being pushed out or him losing power except for something like an external coup or slipping in the shower. Yeah, so there is the scenario he could drop dead because he has right. some kind of illness. So that's one <laughs> that's one scenario. And actually, I mean there's a process in place the prime minister would become president, so that wouldn't necessarily lead to chaos. I think people who say if he were out things could be worse, I think like wake up, like things are pretty much as bad as they can be. Um well, they could get worse, but I mean Putin is is the person making things pretty much as bad as they can be. So, yeah, he could he could die. That's one scenario. But in terms of pe- people kicking him out, he has surrounded himself with loyalists. He has divided the elite very skillfully over 22 years. I mean, his his treatment of the oligarchs is just almost a case study in systematically going after one person, then turning to everybody else saying, you know, we all agree that this guy, he did this, that, and the other thing wrong, and he's very different from you, so so it's fine to exile him, right? And, you know, then you go to the next guy, and pretty soon you only have people who are who are totally loyal to him. <laughs> right. So I right, don't right. think a palace coup is very likely. <laughs> I mean, one thing militarily is uh, the war allows people in the security services who are otherwise separated from each other to communicate. Um, so that might be some possibility of coordination. And if he did, tried to do something like use nuclear weapons, I think that would be very dangerous for him. Yeah, tell me about that. How would that go over with the public? Could they keep that from them? How would that go over with uh, other people who might have some claims to power in Russia? Yeah, I think that would be literally crazy. Um, and I, I think convincing people to go along with that, which would certainly result in an escalation. I think, uh, I, I just think there would be opposition. I mean, one, one other thing I think that is worth noting is that whereas the Russians did not follow, you know, what we were talking about earlier with Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian politics, you know, this was something not important to them. Like what the Ukrainians think, what they're doing doesn't matter. They didn't really follow that. They absolutely follow nuclear weapons, arms control talks, negotiations. They're actually very mad and humiliated that the U.S. side cut off a lot of discussions because that is something they think kind of ups their standing internationally. That shows that they're an important power. So they are very familiar with U.S. Um, capabilities. And that's not that's not something that would come as a surprise to people in the military. So that's where I think the nuclear issue is not something they would just sort of um, bumble around and not know, you know, who maybe this would happen, maybe that. They've they've thought a lot about that, and they know about U.S. counterstrike capabilities, and they're they have to be worried about that. So I don't, I don't think it's likely. And I think if Putin did try to do something like that, he would face a lot of opposition internally. Mm-hmm. So the last thing, just drawing on your knowledge of how Russian politics works, what are some factors to consider outside what I think we all know about Putin, that he's a skillful manipulator, he rules with an iron fist, he uses his oligarchs and access to money to manipulate them. It's a true 
oligarchy. What else? What are some wrinkles of the Russian political system that not enough people are realizing or talking about that could be a complication for Putin? Well, I think that the repression that he has um, uh, put in place since the war started has made it not only hard for people in Russia to organize, but it's made it hard for the regime to know where their support is. And you see public opinion polls, for example, saying, you know, 80%, 83% of people support the war, but they're not showing you how many people hung up the phone and refused to answer. And right. I mean, I think a lot of people are simply not answering public opinion polls. And right. so the people that do answer are pro-regime. So the regime also doesn't These are what we call the shy anti-Putin voters. Yeah, well, I would say more than than shy. I mean, I think for self-preservation, when you're thinking, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, when you're thinking, I might oppose the regime, what's going to be the time I do it? It's not going to be for a pollster, yeah, right? right, right. It's, it's going to be for something more important. So the regime also doesn't know what their level of support is. And that, I think, makes them more nervous about what they think they can accomplish. I think Russia is a bit, Putin is more constrained than a lot of people think he is. Even though he does control many aspects of society, uh, the longer the war goes on, the more the sanctions will hit. And the the more, if there were to be energy sanctions and secondary sanctions, which I totally support, this will weaken him even further. So I think that he's running out of time, and I think he kind of knows that. Yoshiko Herrera is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks so much. Thank you. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com ah mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now, the spiel. Over the years, I've gotten a lot of attention, some feedback, some compliments over the things I've said right here in this space on the spiel, on the gist. I've gotten plaudits, and plaudits for pundits, it's like sugar for horses. They keep us both in clover. Horses also like clover. But to humans, weird idiom. But one thing that irks me in general, that I find vexum, is the compliments I've never gotten for things I haven't said. And I think, I think I should be rewarded, if not by you, but by general consensus, for my good judgment in staying away, not commenting 
on many items that I could have commented on. I'll give you one item that's in the news that I have not said anything about. Baby formula. I've had babies. Well, not had them. I've been there when they were had, and then I helped raise them, and I fed them, often with formula. And yet I have nothing to add, unlike Bette Midler, who advised the formula-less women of America, hey, you might want to try breastfeeding. They know they have them on their chests. Most of them do. Still, it's not that easy, Bette. She got a lot of blowback. So, I've said nothing. I've offered no advice on poor women. And I don't just mean penniless or impecunious women. I mean, everyone who I feel very sorry for who is relying on baby formula doesn't have it. I've said nothing. And that is why between me and Bette Midler, one of us is still in the running for Beaches too. I've also hoped to be the wind beneath your wings on another issue that I haven't opined on, but I could have. I'll read this from the New York Times yesterday. Actual New York Times. If it wasn't an actual New York Times, wouldn't make this noise. Second paragraph. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the panties, meaning super stretchy vanilla flavored panties, to be considered protection against infections that can be transmitted from the vagina or anus during oral sex. It is a first for underwear. And ladies and gentlemen of the gist, the last for me. I believe I should give a warning, even though I was speaking quite clinically and quoting the paper of record. While to some extent for a certain kind of audience member, my thoughts on super stretchy vanilla flavored panties would be welcomed. I know where you are, my listenership. You don't want me opining on these, cracking wise, offering insights, and so I shan't. Yes, again, you're welcome. But there's another story in the news. In fact, according to most audience metrics, the most popular story dominating the news, more than the stock market, more than inflation, more than the war in Ukraine, I now, I have avoided this, but I now will play you a clip from this dominant story. Is Disney aware that Mr. Depp has testified under oath that he would not take another Pirates of the Caribbean franchise role for $300 million and a million alpacas? Yes, it is the trial, the defamation trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. There is so much for me to say and so much unwillingness deep in my super ego trying to advise me against saying it. Amber Heard is an abuser and Amber Turd first appeared in 2016, correct? I don't recall, actually. Right. Do you recall if there was any portion of Mr. Waldman's statement that made any reference to Amber Turd? Not that I've seen. Right. I'll put that quote in context, what you just heard. There was an allegation at the trial, as yet unproved, that uh, as a practical joke gone wrong or simply an act of defiance, misheard, um, defecated, expelled, took, and I think this word was introduced under oath, a grumpy on the shared marital bed of Mr. Depp and Ms. Heard. Uh, this was claimed to be the deposit of their small dog. That was no dog, said Johnny Depp in a revelation more convincing than anything he ever uttered as Jack Sparrow. Anyway, the hashtag 
Amber Turd trended, and this was brought up under oath by an expert trying to, I think, show that it wasn't Amber Heard's defamation, but Johnny Depp's lawyer leaking of material about those incidents that created the most interest or the most hashtags about this case. Like I said, I don't want to get into it. I I don't find it beneath myself. I actually, in my private time, listen to a bunch of podcasts where they analyze and break down who they think are winning. I like to hear Mark Garagos and Vinny from Core TV dissect this trial. I don't have that much insight to add, and I don't want to be tempted to hashtag Amber Turd with you, my audience. Also, her name is Heard. Hearsay comes up. You know I like puns. I'm not going to get into it. There was also a great moment. You know I like words and definitions. And there was this exchange between Johnny Depp's lawyer and the aforementioned Ms. Heard. But you hadn't donated your entire entire $7 million settlement to charity at that point, had you? That's incorrect. Sitting here today, Ms. Heard, you still haven't donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. Isn't that right? Incorrect. I pledged the entirety no, of Ms. the Heard, settlement, $7 million to question. charity, and I, f- I Heard, intend to Ms. fulfill Heard, those obligations. Heard, that's not my question. Please, what was try to question? answer my question. Sitting here today, you have not donated the $7 million, donated, not pledged, donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. I use pledge and donation synonymous with one another. They but the I don't, Ms. Heard, I don't use it synonymously. <laughs> Everyone who's ever worked in public radio knows there is a vast chasm between a pledge and actual payment. Finally, in a nice moment that you don't often get in trials where the witness is just forced to come clean, finally the lawyer got her to admit, yeah, pledge ain't the same thing as an actual gift. So as of today, you have not donated, paid $7 million of your divorce settlement to charity, right? I have not been able to fulfill those uh, those uh, obligations yet. So that is interesting. I am not here to tell you that that's not interesting. From the process of a legal case, it's interesting. Celebrities are always compelling. These two are more compelling than I even thought. Amber Heard, I think I missed all of her acting, but her testimony on the stand was Absolutely compelling, but still, it did not rise to me to the level of something I felt I had to comment on for a basic reason, that I didn't have that much that is insightful to add. I like to talk about the things I know a lot about. I like to do research if I don't know a lot about them, and then when I find out more, I say, oh, this is something worth talking about. I haven't reached that threshold with the herd depth trial. There are interesting things sociologically. There are interesting things in the world of Hollywood or celebrities. I wouldn't look askance at anyone who was obsessed with this trial for whatever reason. But I'm not here to tell you this trial is more than this one basic fact that every fascinating thing that has come out of this trial has not obscured for me, which is this. It is quite possible, in fact, plausible, that Johnny Depp did abuse Amber Heard. And if that's the case, and it seems to be the case, and an English court 
found that it was the case. If that's the case, there's no trial. All of this stuff is fascinating to us, and maybe it'll help or maybe it'll hurt either of their professional careers. But just in terms of the law, or even in what the law symbolizes, the signals that the law gives, I don't think that we've seen much to make me say, aha, Johnny Depp didn't abuse Amber Heard. I don't know. You know, I'm agnostic on this, but I also know what the standard of evidence is. This isn't a criminal trial where you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. This isn't even a preponderance of the evidence situation. The onus is on Johnny Depp to prove, to prove it didn't happen. It is so hard to win a defamation case against a public figure. If you allege anything that is in the realm of truthfulness or plausible truthfulness, you will win as a defendant in a defamation case if you are said to defame a famous person. And from everything I've seen, that seems to apply here. So we've done 19, I think it's 19 days of trial. And like I said, so much of the media is so focused on this. And I understand from the human angle and we know celebrities and also there's a gender issue angle and there are revelations, you know, the trial went from one of defamation to defecation. How could you not be interested in that? But at base, in its most basic form, to me, this trial started off as, well, how's he going to possibly prove that he didn't abuse Amber Heard? And you know what? I don't think he's proved that. It's very hard to do so. And that's why I, although I am attracted to a good cross-examination and a good pun and not averse to the scatological, and that is why I have withheld my comments. Everything you just heard for the last four minutes, a prime, pristine, prominent example of my withholding commentary until the facts are in, until I have something to say. Again, you're welcome. I do feel I deserve a lot more praise for not saying the things I haven't said. Sometimes you say, good job on what you've said, fair. Sometimes you say, bad job on what you said, sometimes fair. But I almost never get Mike, great job on not saying that. And that's why, and I am going to broaden this out beyond the personal, I think I want to speak to the whole podcast industry and the entire podcast listening audience. I think we need to make a point to thank our local and favorite podcaster for not saying the stuff about which they didn't have that much to say. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca anchors the back line for Nashville SC of the MLS. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.